Andros here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8-Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tig Notaro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. I'm Zach Carlson, and you are listening to the World is Wrong podcast. With Andas Jones and Brian Connolly, usually. We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about Destroyer. Welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films. The world is wrong about. I am your host, Andras Jones, here for the second of two special guest host editions with Zach Carlson. Welcome back to The World is Wrong, Zach. I am pleased to be here. And what are we talking about? What film are we talking about? Well, this is uh, this is the fourth of your Nicole Kidman episodes, correct? Yes, this is the fourth and I don't want to say final, but the the final uh, the final of our for this month of Nicole Kidman, yes. So this is maybe I guess her most recent film that is going to be discussed here, um, and it is Destroyer by director Karin Kusama, which came out I guess two three years ago, and and it just kind of vanished like a butterfly's wing in the wind. It's gone, so people didn't talk about it, and it deserves much more. Yes, it does. Yes, it does. I am very excited to discuss this film. Also, in the context of your appreciation for the genre of the gritty crime revenge thrillers, I feel like this is going to be a really uh, exciting conversation. And we're also going to get in a little bit to the the world of Karen Kusama as a director. I... Uh, in preparation for this, I've done a lot of research on just in terms of just watching all uh, most of her films, and I'm I'm pretty excited in the sense of not just a, is Destroyer a great film, but now I feel like there's a new director who's on my radar who I am looking forward to see what they do next. So uh, if you're okay with it, let's just play a clip from the film, and then we'll come back and you can tell us about it. Dragon anchor there, buddy. Dragon anchor. You know, the LT is looking for you. You need to take care of your own press and shit right now, don't you? I got it. Hey, Bell, look, this is handled. What is this? Well, you, you want us to... Yeah, come on. Shot three times at least from the exit wounds right here. What's that? 38 dropped at the scene. Maybe a ghost gun. No cereal, no prints, no witnesses yet. Look. Am I wasting your time? City's time. You have no role here. That's our scene. Who is it? No ID, no idea. There's a few of those, uh, blown die pack. We're waiting on tech. All right, guys, start bringing everybody down now. Start sweet. Look, Bell. Look, this is covered, okay? Just go lie down. What about if I know who did this? Well, I don't know. Then we, we could probably use that, detective. I mean, you gotta solve this right now, then, or, or what? Yeah, fuck you, too. You mentioned earlier that, you know, there's the whole revenge genre and, like, you know, the 
the, the harsh streets and all this stuff. And, you know, the movie is about revenge. It is a renegade cop. And it's all those things that have become, you know, such common tropes in movies. You know, I mean, I have a tattoo of Charles Bronson. And, like, this is my favorite type of movie, vigilantes, all that stuff. That's, like, what I live for. But Destroyer is unique in that she is so filled with wrath and with the desire for vengeance but she has nowhere to put it. And I don't want to get right into the reasoning for that yet, but it's just, you know, it's like integral to a revenge movie that you know who is going to be, <laughs> you know, revenged upon. <laughs> you know who's gonna, who the vengeance is going to rain on. And in Destroyer, that's very unclear until the movie's almost over, and then the answer is really unexpected and brilliant, I think. So... um Plot-wise, it's just about this rage-driven, middle-aged, unhealthy policewoman who is trying to basically like backtrack through all the failures of her life to identify where things went wrong and how she can get even for that. But when she finally gets there, the answer is not so pleasant for her. It uh, certainly isn't. Yeah. So, um, so uh, how do you think the how do you feel like the world is wrong about this film? It's funny because I don't I don't think I heard anything negative about it. I just heard a few blase reactions to it, and then a lot of silence, like the you know just tumbleweeds. And the first time I saw it, it was at um, a film festival that I work for, and you know I we screened it before we booked it for the festival, and I was just was like completely taken by it. And I loved it, and I insisted on. Like, you know, oh, no, we got to give this a really good slot because this is going to be a big deal. And I thought this movie was going to really connect with people. But it disconnected with people for some reason. I still can't figure it out. And I think that I'm really looking forward to our conversation because maybe you will have some insight as to, you know, why I love this movie more than everyone else. <laughs> like, I really don't know. Yeah, well, no, well, when I mentioned it to you, I think this is you who said this, that you felt like this is one of your favorite films of the last that this and Nightcrawler are your two favorite films of the last 10 years. Is that what you said? Yeah. And it's funny because those movies have some similarities, but well, I, yeah, I, yeah. I mentioned that because I feel like that when you told me that it hit this, how did it, it made me drop into a, a deeper understanding of destroyer just aesthetically of like, Oh yeah, it is. I guess it's, it's, it's true noir, right? They both ha are, dealing with people who are on the outside of society, sort of inside and outside of society, living in this really morally ambiguous territory. They're not particularly sympathetic characters, but, Definitely. Uh, but we, you know, but we follow them and they be, we, you know, we just, we live in their, in their noir world. Yeah, I guess, well, let's start this one with talking about, Nicole Kidman, the character actor, because for most of this film, it's it's like a monster movie. She looks like she 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 looks and walks like a walking dead kind, not the the show Walking Dead, but a walking dead kind of character. And oh, yeah, yeah. We've talked about it throughout this month, how one of Kidman's. I don't want to say her tricks, but her strengths is working in silence. And it feels like this film, she, even though there are points when she still uses, she still will go to that whispery Nicole Kidman place for the most part. This is as close as she gets to sort of a Tom Waits growl. She is definitely not playing to any of her usual strengths as an actor. And I don't know about you, but I loved it. <laughs> I thought it was just, I couldn't take my eyes off her. It's funny because several people at the screening um, that, you know, the premiere screening that we did said it took them 10 minutes, 15 minutes, even 20 minutes to realize it was her, but to recognize her physically. Because like, she's just, I mean, she just is playing such a different human than she's ever played. And there's no, you know, there's no, Kidman glamour and none of the you know the timeless beauty of Nicole Kidman who's looked exactly the same for 30 years like that's gone in this movie 
you know, and it's, it's a whole new thing for her, not just visually, but also the, you know, the character's attitude and everything. You said the way she carries herself, the way she walks, it's, it's all non Kidman style. <laughs> like very much. She must have had a blast with this as an actor to get to play this role. Like it's, you don't get the sense of watching her like, Oh, well she's having fun. But right. for someone who really builds her characters, I don't want to say outside in, but in a certain, like there's just this, that so much of her stuff is sort of invisible character work to be able to play something that was really so, so far from it. And just, it must feel fun for her to get to walk with a little bit more swagger. Like if we think about birth, the last episode that we talked about, there was just this nervous fragility to her all throughout that you could think, okay, well, I guess that's who Nicole Kidman is. But then you look at this and it's just, there's none of that, that yeah. constantly moving butterfly, you know, energy inside of a lot of her characters that's she's just grounded and a, sort of dead inside and still lots lots of stillness that isn't active and alive like that like you put if you put a long shot on Nicole Kidman and this it would be I think it'd be still interesting but there would certainly not be as much going on because her mind's just moving a lot slower and more methodically oh god I right. love it oh and typically in a movie like this, you know, when a character has that sort of like, you know, just iron wall of a personality, it's because they're so confident and they're like their invulnerability or whatever. Whereas her character isn't like an action hero. It's not like Steven Seagal's, you know, like reaction situations. It's like she really doesn't give a shit if she dies at all. Like it really doesn't matter. So it's not like she's impervious the pain it's just like that she's already in so much that she doesn't even notice it yeah so it's a and so it's a very different lead for a renegade cop vengeance movie you know which is essentially what it is but it's so unlike any other one yeah do you want to like walk us through a little bit of just walk us through the plot a little bit of this i can do it um so you know a a single mother policewoman just like miserable hunk of burning rage <laughs> You know, this is all this one woman, and she uh, realizes that some shadow from her past is re-entering her reality in, in L.A., and it kicks off this need in her to get revenge for something, but we don't know what it is. And whatever it is clearly annihilated her life. And the movie is set up in a way where you're crossing back and forth from 15 years earlier you're 20 years earlier and like you're basically building the blocks of what, you know, just completely devastated this woman and what made her drained of all emotion and all hope and of all her future. But it's not like done in that, you know, winky memento way that all these people adopted after that movie came out. It, it feels very honest and very natural. And, and, you know, it's hard to, it doesn't feel like a gimmick at all. It's, it, it really does build the story in the best possible way. Just to, okay. So I, I'm going to just jump in a little bit just to, to fill this out. So she's a cop who basically went undercover like, on this drug ring and she falls for her partner who she's undercover with and they get caught up in this world and there's a bank robbery that's going to be taking place and they decide to take part in this and this leads to the death of her lover and now she's going back and trying to get revenge for, on all those gang members uh and to some degree it gets more comp and it definitely gets more complicated than that but that's the right. that's kind of the the setup yeah, for like the first, you know, 80% of the movie, that's what you think you're, you know, being told a story about. And there's some great, there's yeah. some great character actors in this. One of my favorite sort of newer actors who, he hasn't really got many leads, but Scoot McNary is in this. And uh, Karen Kusama, I probably met him directing him in Halt and Catch Fire, which is a series that I really loved. And he plays... Nicole Kidman's 
ex-husband right. who they are raising a daughter with. And it was great to see him show up there. And there's a fun scene where she beats the hell out of Bradley Whitford, which is something uh-huh. that I'm sure we've all wanted to do at one point or another in our lives. Uh, no, I, he's he's fine. But uh, yeah, there there is a little bit of a, a point blank feeling to some of this. Oh. Which is one of my that's one of my top three action movies. Yeah, ever. Did, yeah. I mean, when you were watching this, did you have particularly that scene? The scene with Bradley Whitford made me feel some point blank kind of feelings. You know, I, I'm. I want to be honest. Like, I did not think about point blank for this movie, and but you're right. There are definitely correlations, and I should have. Since I'm so obsessed with that movie, but um. Yeah, and, and similar to like you know that's a Lee Marvin movie, right? And so he has he has two states of being in that movie, right? It's either like catatonia or like just revenge rage, right? And I guess that could be said about her in this movie, pretty much. And for her, there's also this mother thing. So she there's a like a lot of I don't want to say that the revenge is driven by her motherhood or her sense of motherhood, but. During all of this, her daughter, who's at this point, like, must be 16, 17 years old, she's running around with a guy who is older than her and is a creep and who Kidman's character is also trying to protect her daughter from, but her daughter hates her. You just get there's a lot of there's this whole family drama side to this that gives the film. I don't know. It gives it I don't want to say that it gives the film heart because that's not exactly what it gives it it gives it a different sense of stakes than you see in this genre when it's when it's fathers i guess that's the only way i could describe it there's just a different energy to a father's sense of protection and revenge than a mother's and that this film like she's as tough as she's super actually she's Maybe she's a little bit like um, Ben Kingsley's grandmother. <laughs> like she's not a she's not a good. I don't want to say like she's a good mother, but she is driven by motherhood, and and this film is you know gives a gives a voice to her motherhood as a part of this character, which um, you know just it takes up a good a good chunk of the emotional space of this film. Um, and I don't know how that, I don't, I, I can't tell as I think about it if, cause she's a bad mother. Definitely. I mean, I don't know, no offense moms out there. You, I know you're all doing your best, but you could look at this film and be like, at least I'm not, <laughs> at least I'm not Aaron Bell in, uh, in destroyer, you know, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, what do you think about that? Because you 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 watch this genre a lot, and a lot of the this kind of the the cop revenge uh, thriller kind of film, this a lot of times it's the revenge for the death of a child or for the you know the you know the abuse of a child or something like that. Uh, yeah, what do you think about how the, the way motherhood plays into this story? Like, and you're right, even the most boneheaded action movies, like Commando, is just about him getting his daughter back, which is like, you know, one of the most beloved dumb action movies ever. Um, but in this one, and I, is it okay if I go into a spoiler? Yeah, thing yeah, already? yeah, spoil away, spoil away. It's clear that she's never really connected with her daughter as a person. Like, you know, like they had their moments probably when she was a toddler or whatever, but they are very disconnected, you know, family wise. Uh, emotionally in the movie and it's you know late at the end of the film we realize that this daughter is not scoot mcnary's biologically but the boyfriend of nicole kidman who died and i think the only reason she's so she even cares about her daughter's well-being is because that's the last piece she has of her boyfriend who she's still in love with 20 years later after his death and or i guess 16 years later because the age of the girl but like that's what I got out of it. It's like, this is the last piece I have of him. Do you think it's interesting? I just follow them. I'm into synchronicities. I think it's interesting that in birth, 
we measure the time between a tragedy and the present by the age of a child. The film is all about it, it's all about the ten years really between the death of uh, Nicole Kidman's character's husband and birth and when the kid arrives. And in this, this crime surrounded by her pregnant that happens right when she realizes she's pregnant. And then we're measuring the film by the age of her daughter, whose safety in some sense she's, she's fighting for as again, but in a very conflicted way, like, cause she's also fighting to try and, I don't know, make good her, what, what she, well, this is where I guess, again, we're fully into spoilers. So what we find out at the end of this film, as it tells its story non-linearly, is that it was her idea to participate in the crime, to try and make the money so that they could run away together with their kid. So all of this came from her bad decision. And something about the the bleak honesty of that. I think that's part of why it gets to live in that nightcrawler zone. Like there's just nothing. The film is easy to watch, but the film does not make anything like an easy or pat or one dimensional answer. And that right. is, that is the key to it. Yeah. Cause ultimately since we're laying it out, like the person she's getting revenge against throughout the entire movie is herself, you know, like she's really just wants to be dead for what she did to him. And she takes it out on everybody else involved, but there's never a sense of accomplishment or successful vengeance all the way up the chain of the people she blames because the person who's most to blame for her anger is herself. And so the movie about somebody who's like lashing out to get revenge on the world for something that they did wrong. Um, and in that way, it's like, I've never seen another movie like it. Yeah. I'm trying to think I'm a big fan of it's different, but I'm a big fan of Mr. Arkadin, the Orson Welles film where he sends someone else out to send out someone to, um, do research on him to find out if anyone could find out his crimes. Um, but it, I, it's different, but there's this sense, and maybe, I mean, I guess maybe it is Wellesian, because it also has a maybe a touch of evil kind of quality, like this bad cop at the end of a run, and they tried be, you know, it's like someone who had came in with the best intentions, made some bad decisions, has become a villain, and then the film is untying this knot. You know, it's like in another film, there would be someone who was trying, like nobody's trying to catch her. Like usually in another film, there would be some other cop who was still trying to unravel this case and get to the right. bottom of it. Like she does have a partner who's kind of doing that, but he's not. He's just checking in with her. He's loyal to his cop friend, even though she's a total mess. And yeah, yeah, yeah she is the cop taking out vengeance. She's both the cop do- running like yeah she's trying to catch herself ah it's so good yeah that's i was gonna say that it's like she is both characters so yeah and then she has no relationship with the people around her she has no you know like no successful relationship with herself like she's so disconnected from her own life you know and it's like her life ended when his did when her boyfriend's did so which is what I said about her in birth. Like when her husband died, she didn't feel anything until the boy showed up. And it's kind of a similar thing. Yeah. So. Yeah. I was listening to an interview that the director did with Christopher Nolan. And she was saying that on, like it's a genre film and it's all these things, but in a lot of ways, it's just a film about middle age. Because of regrets and the way that you... Yeah, you're still vital enough to feel like you have... And this is... I'm putting words into it now, but it feels like at you're vital enough to still have the energy to try and correct the things you did wrong. And you're wise enough to realize how many things you have done wrong. And to try... and But also... 
it's a hard road. Like this film, like, but to try and correct the things that you may be wrong or right about that you think you did right or wrong is just a treacherous path. I mean, I mean, obviously much it's different in the war in this film than it is in birth or than it is in out in yours or my life. But um, I just think it's interesting that that's, that's what she's exploring. Yeah. And it's funny because it's written by, Karen Kusama's husband, Phil Hay, and he has a writing partner, um, Mark. I'm trying to remember. Uh, Matt Manfredi, or Matt Manfredi. Mark Manfredi, yeah. No, Matt. Or Matt. Matt. Yeah. yeah. Sorry. I apologize to them for mangling the name. But, um, but yeah, so, and they, you know, she knew that she, like, wanted to make a movie that was grounded, and, and her filmography definitely has stuff that's very grounded and very not. But then her husband and his writing partner just came up with this character and developed it with her, apparently. And it just feels so confident and so, like, like such an established world, like, right off the bat. And it is kind of similar to the world in Nightcrawler, where it's just like the, you know, the under the freeways of Los Angeles, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, to live and die in L.A. and all and that stuff where you don't see any of the palm trees that L.A. is known for, you know? It's just the garbage parts and it's really compelling for some reason. So, well, one just, reason yeah. just cause we are in the month of kid mania. One reason is, is Nicole Kidman's performance. No doubt about it, but we are talking about, uh, Karen Kusama and, and her writing partner, Phil Hay. And did, I don't know if Matt Manfredi works on all of their stuff, but I'd like to just, she has a small enough filmography and between us, we've seen all of them. And so I just wanted to like give sort of quick shout outs because it's a pretty impressive run. I think that's also part of where maybe this is where the world is wrong is not just that the world is wrong about destroyer, but destroyer should have put, and maybe it did. I hope it did for Hollywood uh, should to put uh, Karen Kasama on the map for, uh, for fans of film because it stands on the top of some other pretty great work. So her first film from 2000 was Girl Fight. I just recently watched it. It was the film that discovered Michelle Rodriguez. And she plays a girl who wants to box and there aren't other women boxers or girl boxers. She's in high school and she's just like a, she's a tough kid in high school. They introduce, she gets introduced like Marlon Brando. The introduction shot of her is like also a great introduction shot of Karen Kusama as a director, just like, okay, this is the meeting of a great face and a great camera. And and then basically she fights boys and she's going out with she's there's a guy that she likes at the gym but she ultimately has to fight him <laughs> it's it's pretty great it's pretty it's pretty great also you know it's just a, it's a first feature i think john sales shows up as a cameo in it and i think he helped her make it uh in terms of helping her get the financing and uh, she actually was a boxer so uh, it's just that's a it was a, it's one of those sort of perfect first films, character study, boxer film, but turned on its head that introduces a uh, a pretty big star. And then she Kusama was a boxer. Uh, yeah, Kusama. She like she worked out as a boxer. I don't know if she like she was an actual oh. professional boxer, but she was a boxer for quite a while. And then like two years after I'm re- actually, I read that in her Wikipedia, like a few years after it, she wrote a, a screenplay about this character, about a, you know, I guess imagining this character or maybe just based upon her own experience of fighting, fighting dudes. And I take, you haven't seen girl fight. I should have, and I have not yet. <laughs> no shoulds, no shoulds. I, I, but uh, this is one I, I definitely recommend that anyone who's who likes Destroyer, it's worth it to take the time to just walk back and see all of these. And I haven't seen all of them, but I did see Anne Flux, which going from Girl Fight to Anne Flux seems like a really r- tough transition for any director. Anne Flux was a big uh, sort of sci-fi comic book. I mean, from what I saw, kind of a mess, but I remember 
being in a hotel or someplace and seeing it come on at one part, like seeing one segment of it years ago. It's a scene where Charlize Theron and another character are having to sort of do gymnastics across this grassy field that also has these blades coming out. And there's, it's so, I remember watching it and being like, this film could be, seeing that one part, just thinking that this could be pretty bonkers, this film. I might actually watch that. It looks pretty amazing. And then I never did get around to watching it. And then when I watched it just recently for this, it was the one that didn't really hold up. But it did introduce Charlize Theron as a, an action star, so she's two for two in terms of doing a great job of elevating her leading lady, which I feel like, or I mean, maybe leading lady is the wrong word. Her lead, her star, her female star, right. uh, in in ways that made them just tough and without without being becoming men, being super tough. And you can see that that's all sort of like she builds Destroyer on that. And then the one for me that was just like, holy shit, how how is this person not on every list of like super directors? Jennifer's body. People see this movie. It's so uh, it's a script by Diablo Cody. It's uh, it's with uh, Megan Fox and Amanda Seyfried. I think that's how you pronounce her name. And it's just, I don't, I don't love horror films and it's a horror film, I guess, but it's a film. I don't even want to describe it because it, it works with the genre. So it's about, it's about a, a demon who eats boys. It's in a weird way, it's under the skin like five years earlier and way more fun. In fact, it would make a fantastic double feature with under the skin. Um, <laughs> Yeah, and and in a way, like it's that thing of like, like under the skin is a very pre- not pre- pretentious in a bad way, but a pretentious, very thoughtful, really you know intense guy's way of expressing this thing, and then to see the confidence and just fuck you rock and roll sensibility that Kusama and Cody bring to this, it's. Like I'm serious. I'm I'm, I'm talking about. It, I'm kind of buzzing because I feel like, even though we're talking about Destroyer, I feel like not enough people have. I had never heard of, and I had never even thought of watching this film. And now it's it it's like a film that I could do a whole episode on Jennifer's body, and that's the extent of my awareness uh, of uh, Karen Kasama's work. But you saw The Invitation. So tell us about that. Right which is the only movie I'd seen before I saw Destroyer. Um, and the thing about the problem with the invitation is that it's really more so than almost any movie I can think of a movie where you want to know absolutely nothing going into it. Cause like, it's not like it has some big reveal at the end. It's like every minute detail on every character and everything. It's just, it's better left unsaid. So it's an impossible movie to write about, to talk about. You could like take people at their word that it's really effective, but what it did do was bring her back down to a movie that's probably around the size of Girl with Bite, where it's a very grounded, very character-based, you know, no blades popping out of fields at all. And that's the same level. I mean, Destroyer, I think, was a higher-budget movie than The Invitation, but it's, it's certainly really grounded. It takes place in, like, living rooms and gutters, and, you know, it's just a human-sized story. And The Invitation is, too, even though it's more of, like, a kind of a horror thriller and not even saying too much but like um yeah it's 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 great but it's just a very uh what's funny is like her movies were got big i mean obviously Flux was the largest but like you know and then the invitation shrinks down to basically be really claustrophobic and just like a tiny story that it, that's really effective and well acted and well directed but like small as hell, and then again started to grow a little bit with Destroyer. Like kind of reached back out into the world. But yeah, it's just it definitely felt like she got very, very interested in characters around them, like leading everything, you know. And which probably isn't the case. I'm guessing with the Onflex, but I haven't seen it. So I should shut up. I mean, it's honestly, I just don't even. I can't even imagine 
to go from directing Girl Fight to directing Aeon Flux. That's just too much. I don't know how, like, I don't care how good, like, yeah, I don't care how good you are. And I think, thinking about it, it's like, it, it's uh, it's something you couldn't say no to. Like, the opportunity to do that is so great. But, you know, just those kind of films aren't really, it's like the Scorsese thing. They're not even really movies. It's, it's really not, certainly not in her wheelhouse. And then to just watch again, like with Jennifer's Body, it's a, it seems like it's a, I don't know what budget, but it's a, you know, it seems it's, it definitely is a big er movie, but not, but it's also, it seems like the, it seems like that's the follow up to Girl Fight. And Flux feels like, what are you going to do? Say no to a chance to direct this huge movie? But it doesn't feel self-generated. Whereas Jennifer's body is just such a, yeah, it's a perfect follow-up to Girl Fight. And Destroyer feels like the perfect follow-up to Jennifer's body. And I'm really looking forward to seeing The Invitation now. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think from what I know of your taste, you're really going to like that one a ton. So, And she also worked on a bunch of TV shows. She directed episodes of Billions, of uh, Masters of Sex, of Man in the High Castle, Halt and Catch Fire. Those are all uh, shows that I really liked. And The Outsider. Not to be confused with Outsider, the show on Vice that you were a uh, host and uh, co-creator of. Yeah, there's there's a two-year stretch where there was three shows with Outsider in the title that came out. And uh, one of them was the Stephen King you know, story that Karin Kusama did some episodes of, apparently. And then another one was me and two friends just like, you know, doinking around making documentary, short documentaries for Vice. And uh, I can tell you which one made more money. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, but it, it was, uh, yeah, it's funny. And, and then there was this other film, Outsiders, about like, you know, hillbilly criminals. So, Well, and then also there's The Outsiders, which was uh, the Francis Ford <laughs> Coppola movie about the S.E. Hinton novel. And yeah. I'm pretty sure there's crazy. there's got to be an outsider before that written by you know, some French French existentialist, but I, I, it's, not, it's not coming to the tip of my tongue. Uh, I find it interesting that the episode of The Outsider that Karen directed was called The One About the Yiddish Vampire. And uh, I was recently working with, uh, with, with someone trying to develop a Jewish vampire film. Uh, but uh, unfortunately, the director got deported to Canada. But... <laughs> Uh, now we're we're kind of moving away from uh, before we we move on from Destroyer. I think we've made it pretty clear. You should see this film. You should check out this director. If we haven't, if you are, if you're not in love with Nicole Kidman by now, you probably have decided to wait until the end of this month because to 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 check back in with us because we have been diving so deep into her filmography. But before we move on from Destroyer. Nicole Kidman, Karen Kusama, is there anything else that you'd like to say on these on these topics? I I think to me, um, really quickly about uh Destroyer is it does this weird thing where almost every movie that's an action film, a revenge film, vigilante movie, they build their momentum, you know, to this final conflict, right? And this movie doesn't have a final conflict because it's internal ultimately. So the momentum, and also maybe jumping around by decades, so the momentum never builds, but the intensity maintains, which is kind of contradictory. So it's kind of like she pulls off, I mean, Kusama and Kidman both pull off this impossible feat of like making you feel more and more tense and invested in this revenge story while it's just zigzagging all over the place emotionally and in time. And everything, and it's like, and it's really special, and it's really unlike anything. I think there's a lot of people who probably just assume it's like female death wish, you know, and it's not. No. It's not anything that has existed before. It's it's really unique, and it really deserves more credit. Yeah, in its own way. I mean, we talked about birth last week, and in its own way, this film pulls off a similar 
masterful magic trick. And I think you just, you detailed it correctly. And I think one of the things that, that you get because of that is that by the time the movie gets to the end, what would be a, the, like the sort of classically bleak ending of a film of this story, this kind of story ends up being a strange moment of beauty and transcendence. Like it's actually, it's actually emotionally satisfying, but not in the way that like the cathartic violence way that another film does in this almost, right. I don't want to say religious way, but in this, yeah, there's just, it ends on a holy moment. Yeah. And it's, and honestly, it's not a happy ending, but she does get what she wants. Yeah. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah, this is this is the one thing we're not giving away. <laughs> this is one thing we're not saying explicitly. But, yeah, but it's a. Uh, I mean, again, we assume that people. I'm really with these 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 shows. You should always watch these watch the films before you listen to it. I know some people don't mind, and then you know I've actually I we had one uh, listener to the show write in and say, "Hey, could you stop telling us to watch the movies before some of us." just like to listen to you tell us the whole story of the movie. I was like, okay, but don't get mad at us for, for giving spoiler alerts. I mean, you're, 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 you have a unique kink and we appreciate that. Hey y'all, it's Amy from the Pink Among Men podcast. I know you are really, really busy with your sourdough starter and your fourth rewatch of The Office. So it's totally cool if you don't have time for an informative, perspective-bending podcast right now. But if you do have a few minutes to spare in your jam-packed schedule, I want to offer Pink Among Men for your consideration. Pink Among Men is a weekly conversation on different perspectives, gender, and marginalization in the creative community. We chat with actors from shows you watch, directors who make movies that you want to watch, and comedians from stand-up shows that you'll probably never watch, but you should. Every Wednesday, they sit down to talk about the tragedy and the triumph that comes with not being a white dude in arts and entertainment. You probably don't have time for it, but maybe subscribe so you can listen when you're a little less busy. Get Pink Among Men on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're a proud member of the Paperhouse Network. So, um, speaking of unique kinks, we teased it out in last week's episode. You and I were part of an historic musical theatrical production experience in Olympia, Washington in, uh, I think it was 1999 or 2000. Yeah. We were both parts, uh, we were both uh, sang and acted and to some degree danced in The Transfused from Nomi yeah. Lam and The Need. When people call you to interview you about your participation in The Transfused, Zach, how do you, how do you describe it? Uh, it was a, like, I don't say post-apocalyptic. I guess like entropic, uh, like you know, primarily uh, like gay rock opera uh, that was sort of like new wave punk metal musical. Yeah, and it was a phenomenon. <laughs> and it was a, it was a, it was super indie, and it when it happened. There was a, an element of kismet to it, and it was on the cover. It was like, in, I don't know, it was on the cover. It was in Newsweek magazine, and it was like, it was very zeitgeisty for a moment. And It was? Yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. And actually, you ended up playing the role that I turned down. <laughs> So the story is like, uh, the, yeah, this where you have all these people living in this toxic environment where they can't go outside and they have to take the, the medicine from the company, from the corporation that keeps them high on and weak from this medicine. And they work in the fat-free factory making fat-free fat. And uh, they're, they're policed by this military guard that I was, I ended up being a part of. And the the whole thing is controlled by you well you really you and your wife are the sort of the the corporate 
or a wife and sometimes partner and so like you play different characters but you're the ones controlling uh, the corporation and living in the sort of uh, fat-free uh, world uh, it would is that how you describe it yeah it was, it was very pre uh, Donald and Melania type characters really yeah like, it, I mean it really, really was but you know like 15 years before that or more yeah I don't know yeah but yeah, it, it was a very, I mean, a very dark view on the future, but accurate. <laughs> so, can't fault it. Yeah, so when we auditioned, Nomi offered me that, and I was like, oh, there's enough people, I was like, Nomi, enough people in this town already, like, think that of me already. I can't do that. You gotta, <laughs> if I'm going to do this, you got to let me play someone who's not, like, don't, like, I don't want to be the butt of that joke. And it was great watching you do it, because I was like, oh, it's... Everything worked out great because then they actually offered me a role where I got to sing some songs that I was really, really happy to get to sing and explore some territory that I was excited. I was excited to explore, but I also got to watch you, and you were super funny, and you know, you just brought a great, uh, angry, punk rock happiness to it. If that makes sense, like <laughs> you, you played it. You know those no means no shirts. With the happy, smiley guy on oh, them. Oh, yeah, the guy, the guy who's hanging himself while smiling. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. That would be the energy that I feel like that you brought to that. Uh, I don't I know how many people me. listen to this are going to know what we're talking about. Maybe I can find a video of it somewhere. I'll post it in here. Uh, but did you, I, I, I don't know. I feel like that might be one of the, my greatest experiences as an actor. In a, probably. Really? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's great. Well, you end up getting like really featured moments in it, and like your character became more, you know, varied than a lot of them. And so, you know, like multi-level, and so yeah, that, that was a really fun. That was a really fun event. But it's crazy because for those of you listening who don't know Olympia, Olympia is like the size of like a toenail, and it produced this successful, like live stage rock opera. You know, and that's like kind of insane. Yeah, with the band The Need. With a cast of probably like 35, 40 people and a crew of another 20 more. Uh, yeah. And we ran sold out shows like two two weekends in a row. And if they had decided to keep it running, oh boy, I know there's a lot of people who have regrets about that. But uh, but it was a yeah. it was a bright and shining moment. And now having gone through these two episodes, people, it really does span like run the gamut, Zach. We've now collaborated on three things. One, Troll <laughs> 2, Best Worst Movie. Two, The Transfused. And three, these podcasts. We did it. <laughs> it's pretty exciting. So is there anything of yours we can promote? Yeah, well, so your co-host, Brian, uh, he and I spent almost a decade like just an annihilating ourselves doing research for a book we wrote called Destroy All Movies, The Complete Guide to Punks on Film. And, uh, you know, we, and we're going to be doing an expanded edition that's going to come out in a few years that's going to have, like, it's going to be thicker than a phone book. And then also in June, uh, my friends Joe and Annie and I did a book called Bleeding Skull uh, that's coming out, you know, in a few months. Um, and it's from Fanographics Publishers, the same ones who did Destroy All Movies. And it's kind of like a map of all the backyard camcorder horror movies of the end of the 20th century. And it's a totally uncelebrated genre of people that had to like sell their truck to make a movie about, you know, vampires or whatever. So that's called Bleeding Skull, a 90s trash horror odyssey. Hmm. I'm curious. Does my character's haircut in Nightmare on Elm Street for the Dream Master qualify as a punk? Nope. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. It would have been I would it would stretch the credibility of your project if it did. I really appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, you know, I, you can't help it. You, be, you once you're an actor, you're always an actor. You're always trying to like even if you're not right for the gig, you're like eh, does it could it work? And then the director's like no. And you're like yeah, yeah, probably not. <laughs> Well, the girl in part three in the alley. Oh, uh, yeah. Jennifer Rubin. She's. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, if you were doing an episode, if you were doing a book about uh, white karate guys, 
then you would be all over. I'd be all over that. (laughs) You and Chuck Norris, hand in hand on the cover. Oh, geez, I'm in such terrible company. (laughs) Um, And you're here to. I I think probably what what I'm gonna do to. Well, I'm gonna record something with Brian to close this out because this is the last the last episode of our month of Kid Mania, and I'd like to let him get a get the last word in here so is there any are there any uh, you want to hand the torch off to brian in any way uh anything you want to that he'll hear this and and you know he'll come in right after it's been well it's been really fun to hang out with you again because you and i haven't seen each other much in the last you know decade and a half um and i'm really excited to be part of this thing that i'm glad you're doing with brian specifically because not only is he my creative partner, but he is my best friend and he is the love of my life. So uh, I'm, I'm really glad that you guys let me be part of, you know, climb up in your clubhouse and hang out for these two episodes. Hi, everybody. Sorry to interrupt this show that you're probably enjoying, but I'm comedian Kevin Dombrowski, who you probably don't know. Joined weekly by my producer, Adam, a little bit more well-known than me, Hineker. Say hi, Adam. True. He's got a point. Uh, dial it back. Each episode, I'll sit down with a very famous comedian that you probably do know. And if they're not famous, you probably know them anyway. And we'll break down what's happening in the world by making fun of all of it. This is Just Joking on the Paperhouse Network. No interviews, no arguments, just jokes. Now, back to your show that you were already enjoying. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform. <laughs> Well, what do you think about Zach's nice words about you, Brian? You know, he's he's too kind. I think he's I think he's just like my mother. He's just known me too long that he he doesn't know the bad parts. You know, it's just it's blinded by his love. It, it is it's too too much uh, praise for such a small man. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I, just for the listeners, he's back. Brian Connolly's back. back. Hello, you missed him. I thought, but. But you didn't miss Nobody him too much because you were enjoying his friend Zach Carlson. So, how, exactly. what do you think about Zach's? Uh, you know, Zach as a co-host. Were you listening to it and thinking <laughs> you kicking yourself for not for not being a part of these, or were you thinking maybe you, know, you could I just would, like get I, out of this entirely and see if you could do all of them? <laughs> you know, it's 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 good. I feel like it's good that we're separated like this because, like, if we were both on it. Number one, the episode would be five hours long, because like, and then it would be full of lots of boring in jokes that no listener would care to listen to. So I think it's good that it's either him or I, but not together on a on a on a podcast. Because I think it's just like too much. <laughs> okay, but he did good. I think he did good. No, I'm. I, hopefully, we can have him back. Uh, you know, again for something else. So. Yeah. Oh yeah. Well, you know, whenever you feel like playing hooky. Just tag him in. <laughs> well, this brings us to the end of our month of Kidmania, Brian. I know. It's, it's maybe a yearly thing. She's going to keep making good movies and hopefully not keep being underrated as a great actress, but maybe keep making interesting little things that not everyone sees that we can champion. I don't know. You know, as much as I love Nicole Kidman, I feel like that might be unfair to all of the other (laughs) actors and directors in the world. And there probably is, there's probably at least one other deserving person in the world of cinema that we can devote a month to, but I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I would say that I'm, I'm almost a hundred percent sure that we will cover more Kidman films. It'll happen. It'll happen. She's, yeah. She just always works with the best people, and she's so great. And and she'll probably, you know, she'll probably outlive us all. <laughs> that's the hope, right? <laughs> yeah. That's is, is is that the hope? Yeah. <laughs> Do you spend a lot of time sitting around hoping that 
your favorite movie stars outlive you. I, I, I... no, actually, the the I have the opposite. I'm like, man, I hope Adam Sandler dies while I'm alive because I'd be so sad if I missed something. Exactly, that's what I was thinking. It's but, a selfish but, thing, but I but don't... I don't want to wish. But I don't want to wish them dead because I love them so much. So really, we should just all like tuck Everlast it together. If we can just all live for eternity at the same time, I think that's the better option. I'm sorry I took this in a morbid direction, but there is something. I mean, I guess it's just like I feel, you know, I guess maybe it's this film. Destroyer was pretty dark. Um, but yeah. Uh, but yeah, I just uh, I guess I, I'm just I'm I'm feeling appreciative, but I'm also already missing Nicole Kidman and those feelings of loss. Uh, yeah, you know, get they get to me. Is there do we do we have a final I guess our final take on Nicole Kidman is good job, Nicole. Right. <laughs> yeah i mean what a different four very different movies we covered you know and four very different performances like if that isn't enough to wet anyone's palate of like how talented this person is i don't know what would be yeah yeah she's doing okay though so no worries for nicole it's <laughs> it's really for your benefit that you get to enjoy all the work she's done she's already enjoyed it and moved on to better yeah. things as <laughs> Are well, I don't want to say better things, but we are moving on. We are moving on from our month of kid mania, and coming up next, we're going to be focusing on something that I think we are a lot more ambivalent to than Nicole Kidman, <laughs> which is the the whole awards shenanigans yeah. and mashugan and nonsense <laughs> that is going to happen for the next month. But I think we've come up with a pretty fresh and, I hope, exciting way to engage this month of awards. I agree. Yeah. So what do we, what do we, I guess, overview, we're going to be talking about some films that are not Oscar nominees, but allow us to maybe discuss some of the Oscar nominees. And then we're going to be doing an episode about the Oscars pro and con with your director's wall co-host AJ Gonzalez. And we're even going to be doing our own Noscars No Wards show uh, <laughs> that you'll be hearing more about throughout the throughout this month. But uh, what's coming up next? Because it's your choice, Brian. So next we are doing the Peter Bogdanovich film The Cat's Meow is sort of in a way an alternative or companion piece to Mank, which is up for many the most Oscars, I believe. So, yeah, Cat's Meow. I'm very excited. And it covers and kind of dips in that same world, that secret world of millionaires with William Randolph Hearst and Marion Davies. So, please, if you can find that movie, watch it and then listen. The secret world of millionaires? You're talking about the secret world <laughs> of billionaires, my friend. Come on. Don't, <laughs> don't think so small. But, yeah, Cat's Meow was great. And we are recording this after we've recorded that episode. So, I can tell you that um, there's some really exciting revelations there. And if you want to play a drinking game where every time I mispronounce Peter Bogdanovich's name as Peter Bogdanovich, <laughs> uh, you will get good and toasted by the end of that show. Sorry, Peter. And to all Bogdanoviches. Um, you know, you'd think that Andras Jones wouldn't make that mistake, as, as since I'm always correcting people who want to call me Andras. So I'm really very sorry, but it's, it's a great episode and you should check out the film, The Cat's Meow, to get ready for it. And if you have any questions or thoughts or concerns, if you want to share your thoughts about Kidman or your own personal case of Kidmania, you can write to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast.com. You can find us at the world is wrong podcast on Instagram and yeah, you could, you know, I'm sure there's lots of, there's other ways you can track us down, but, but really why bother? Because, because, <laughs> well, basically wherever you are, Nicole, just remember that the world is wrong and it's probably even wrong about you. Where did we meet? Bar, Hammett, 2002. Where'd you grow up? All over, most of the Las Cruces. What bar? Taffy's, why Las Cruces? Dad got transferred to White Sands. He left, we stayed. Why were you always at Taffy's? Bartender gave me a break on drinks. Where'd you go to school? Centennial High, expelled, got my GED. 
Did half a year at Doniana Community. Toss for dealing. What was across the street from the bar? Car dealership. Their son was a huge neon bear. What was the mascot at Centennial? Hawks. What was the name of the bouncer? The one with the hair. Martin. How'd we meet? Marlon. Marlon. Fuck. Fuck is right. They can check that. Yeah, Marlon, Marlon. Okay. How'd we meet? We were both at the bar trying to order. A Dire Straits song came on the jukebox. You screamed and put this shit on. I turned and confessed. We said it was a Pink Floyd song, Chris. Yeah, uh, well, fuck that. I like Dire Straits. I'm just an aging drummer boy, and in the wars I used to play. And I've called a tune to many a torture session. Now they say I am a war criminal and I'm fading away. Father, please hear my confession. 